At Saturday to Shabbos, we really enjoy releasing new episodes and continuing to share people's inspiring journeys to Jewish observance. At the same time, it's impossible to ignore the tragic events currently unfolding in Israel. So while we are continuing to record new interviews, we felt it would be meaningful from time to time to reprise previous interviews. The following episode with Sivan Rav Meir was originally released in September of 2021. She's a very well-known lecturer, columnist, radio host, and media personality, and much of her time these days is spent covering the conflict with Hamas. We want to bring back the story of her personal journey, because it's so meaningful to hear it again in the context of what's happening in the Holy Land. I'm Jeff Cohen. Sivan Rahav Meir is a lecturer, columnist, radio show host, and well-known media personality in Israel and the States. She was recognized by the Jerusalem Post as one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world. She grew up in a secular home, but then she was invited for Shabbat by three young women. That experience completely changed her outlook on Jewish observance. I always thought it's so primitive, it has nothing to say, it was something ancient, and suddenly it became really needed. Just ahead, how one of Israel's most popular media figures found her Judaism. Sivan, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Wow, Shalom, thank you for exaggerating. <laughs> These are facts, I'm not exaggerating, so I want to thank you for being here today. Thank you for, you know, inviting me, but thank you for organizing that podcast, you know, producing the whole s- story of Saturday into Shabbos. It sounds like something we really need right now. I believe, by the way, we need stories today more than we need fact. You know, people don't need, you know, the proofs, the evidence for things that happened, you know, in Egypt or Mount Sinai. I think they need uh, inspirational stories to connect to. That's how I see it. I actually heard you say that in a previous interview where you mentioned people can get facts so fast in real time that as a journalist, you can't even beat people to giving the facts. It's more important to show your personality and have opinions on the story. It's true. Think about the amount of, of you know, data, information, facts we get every day. Like the minute from, we're speaking here, like what, for one, two minutes, the, the world explodes. You know, there's so much information out there. And I think that the mission today is making all those, you know, facts into something meaningful, you know, giving context Maybe that's the most urgent mission today. So yeah, explaining what's going on, because we know too much. But what's really going on here behind the scenes, maybe that's our role today. For sure. And if you need to leave for a breaking story, I will understand. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. No, I asked the people, I work for the news uh, in Israel usually, but I asked them to give me an hour off and to talk to you. That's the main headline right now. That's the scoop. All right, so let's dive into your story. And let's, let's start with your family history. So my family came from... Minsk, Russia, and from Hungary, where does your family come from? Uh, Russia and Poland, basically. From my mother's side, they came really early during the first Aliyah, the first pioneers who came here before the state of Israel was was founded uh, more than 100 years ago. I'm really proud of the fact, you know, they identified, you know, the, the right direction. And they were here. They founded the city of Rishon Lezion. It's a huge city today. That's really exciting. For, for, for my kids are seventh generation in Israel, so that's really something wow. rare. Yeah, think about it. You know, most of the people are, are olim chadashim, new immigrants, or maybe their parents, their grandparents. And I'm here. We're really native Israelis. And from my father's side, we come from Poland. They came from Russia. And my grandmother and grandfather, they were Holocaust survivors. They came from the city of Piotrków in Poland, and they came here after the Holocaust and uh, rebuilt Israel here. Wow, but and your childhood was in Herzliya, right? So you grew up, though, in a, a secular home, but were there certain Jewish customs that you were still doing? 
definitely secular Israelis are different than secular Americans, you know, because we keep things, we speak Hebrew and we're connected to the Jewish calendar, Jewish months, you know, the holidays, that's the pulse, you know, you live according to the Jewish pulse. And uh, in school, even if it's not a religious school, you do get that, uh, I would say, package of, of basic fundamental parts of your identity. Uh, so yeah, I knew more than the average American uh, uh, secular Jew, but uh, but I didn't know enough. And um, I grew up in a great city called Herzliya, uh, in the center of Israel, next to Tel Aviv, and a great family and friends and parents and educational system. But something was missing. You know, I, I definitely believe it. It wasn't enough. You know, you can um, you cannot come back to Israel uh, without. I believe without those. Uh, without the mutual, you know, heritage we, we all share. And uh, it was, yeah, I missed it. I mean, I, I wanted that part to be part of my life. But did you know any families as a child that were, say, fully observant, that were, you know, eating kosher all the time, keeping Shabbos? Like, did you know anyone who was all in at that point or no? No, and it might be shocking for your listeners abroad because people think, oh, you're in a Jewish state, you're in the state of Israel. It's possible to live in Israel, you know, uh, take me as an example. I never met someone who is a uh, from orthodox, observant, religious until the age of 15, meaning someone who is who keeps kashrut or keeps Shabbat, you know, Shomer Shabbat, Shomer Shabbos, no one until the age of 15. You know, their environment, the neighborhood, the, the, the kids, no one was, you know, maybe some customs, but I never met someone who is seriously, you know, halachic, uh, 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 someone who's committed, He's, who sees halacha as something holy. Uh, until the age of 15, it never happened. Although, once again, it was a great childhood and a great family and friends, but no, uh, no one. So I don't know if that's all that different from the United States, because it, it, if you hear my story, I grew up five minutes from Muncie, and there were literally thousands and thousands of fully observant Jews, but I never met them, never interacted with them, even though they were, they were literally in my backyard. Yeah, I listened to that episode, by the way, fascinating. And uh, I, I, no, I, I do believe it's different, because in a way, the word assimilation meant nothing for me. It was obvious, you know, okay, you can be a secular Jew in Israel, you still marry Jews because that's the majority, that's the identity, that's the culture. And I think uh, the danger in your story was much uh, bigger or higher. I don't know how to, uh, how to treat that. I don't know what, um, what the future, I, I think my future was safer in a way and Judaism was closer. It wasn't just one seat. Here, the fact I, at the age of 15, I first met observant Jews and it happened to you much later. I, I, I think the exposure is, uh, is, is more, I would say, rare in the States. So I want to get to that story of you meeting some observant people. But we've, before we do, one of the things that fascinates me about your childhood is how early you discovered a natural talent that you had for interviewing people. You, you meet adults who still don't know what they're good at or what they should be doing with their life. And you seem to isolate it and figure it out super early. So how did that come about? Yeah, so at the age of six, I became a journalist. I know it's quite, uh, yeah, quite early, a young age. The fact is, I grew up feeling uh, like uh, like a loser. I mean, all the kids, they had those cool hobbies, you know, in the afternoon, painting, drawing, arts and crafts, sports, dancing, playing the piano. And I was awful. Everything I tried was really a disaster. And then I discovered I do have something, you know, I do know how to read and write and speak, you know, that those... Um, Fields, yeah, you know, those are my strong, uh, I would say, this is where I feel better. And for the first time, I was better than others because I was always trying to be at least average, you know, when it comes to playing the flute or dancing, ballet classes. And for the first time, 
I was reading and writing better than them. And they were after me, you know, asking me to help them with their homework or writing something, a play for the end of the year. And then I realized, wow, Baruch Hashem, I'm good. Let's try to even develop that skill. And that's what I did, like 24-7. I was reading and writing constantly. I became a young journalist at the age of six or seven, uh, interviewing the kids in my class. They all became <laughs> an, an item. Yeah, there were very interesting stories there. One was like collecting stamps or, or envelopes or napkins or... I don't know, they adopted a dog, everything. For me, everything became like a story. So I was interviewing them all the time. And then I was invited for the first time. Inter Israeli TV invited me, um, Channel 2. It was like the popular uh, uh, show back then. And they invited me to interview the prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin of blessed memory. And that's how I started. I mean, I interviewed the prime minister live on, on TV as a young girl, and it was the beginning. Then they invited me to interview like every two, three weeks. There was like a celebrity or someone important and famous. And I was like the young, young girl interviewing that. And, and that's, that's the beginning of, of my career, basically for 30 years that I've been interviewing people. I would imagine as a child, certain people would get you more or less excited to interview compared to being an adult. So when you were a kid, who was like the most exciting person you had an opportunity to meet with? So definitely, I interviewed all the politicians, you know, Shimon Perez and that, but the Power Rangers, they came to Israel. <laughs> that was really exclusive, meeting them at Ben Gurion Airport. And uh, that was like, there was, the, the word selfie wasn't invented then, you know, back then. But for me, taking a picture with the Power Rangers, that was the, you know, the dream. But um, everyone, you know, all the, all the Israeli people, like singers, sport, sport, uh, political uh, uh, IDF people, you know, the, from the army. I, I met them all at a very, very, at the age of seven or eight. It was crazy. So uh, that became like my, I want to say it became my hobby, but the truth is school became the hobby and, and that became the real career. Whenever I had time, I went to school, but most of the time I spent it in TV studios or, you know, taking a crew and going filming somewhere. That was my childhood. So were there other children who were on TV? I'm wondering if there was a, at that time, diversity of kids that Israel was trying to represent children from different backgrounds or different religions. What was it like then? Unfortunately, no. When I look back now, I do feel guilty in a way because I was really successful and it was the beginning of my career, but only mine. I mean, sometimes I, I meet people sometimes, my age, approximately, and they said, wow, we were so jealous. It wasn't fair. You know, you took our spot, our play. It was our turn, but it never, you know, we never had the chance to, to be there because I was really secular and very, very Ashkenazi. You know, there's Ashkenazi authority. So I told you Russia and Poland. And um, I was really in the left when it comes to the political spectrum. I supported Oslo agreements back then. I was really in the left, you know, uh, side of the... And uh, I was also, uh, uh, I also lived in Herzliya and the studios, Herzliya Studios, it was, it was like the biggest studio in Israel, it was called Herzliya Studios. And I was there every day because I was, I was just a neighbor. It was really, you know, I, w I was just there. So I, th I think it's not fair because when I, while I was sitting there, you know, they never invited a kid with an accent, you know, from Russia or Ethiopia or France or the States or maybe um, a kid from a, the periphery the north, the south, you know, there's something called kibbutz. It's a special village in Israel or a moshav, like a village or, or a settlement, you know, from Judah and Samaria, or, you know, we have Arab kids. There are many Israeli Arabs, Orthodox kids, 
uh, like more traditional from modern orthodox no one was there just me all the time so it's a it's a problem by the way we must show that that diversity of our society and uh, i think it wasn't fair but it's different today you see more of that diversity when you when you watch tv now who watches tv <laughs> when you stream your favorite show <laughs> exactly the media i mean yeah people try you know in the, if we call the the new world we call new media it means i work for the old media okay nobody says it but it's an old way i still work for israeli radio and, and newspapers and tv uh, stations it's great but uh let's be honest i mean it, it it's it, it becomes weaker every day as we speak and new media takes you know it's it's like you decide you are the editor and you are the reporter and you're not passive anymore sitting there mm, there's no diversity listen to you know this podcast or watch this show or this episode or this song you decide which singer i mean there's no chief editor anymore in a way everything changed so yeah they try to change it on tv slowly not enough but it doesn't really matter because we became so active you know and and i think we don't understand it we're all journalists today. It's not like you're not interviewing a journalist and the people are, are listening. No, I'm speaking to the audience, the people that are watching, listening to us, they are also journalists. Maybe they don't know about it enough, but we're all journalists today. So my guest today is Sivan Rahav Meir. And clearly from a young age, the journalism career is taking off. So let's now transition to the Jewish observance journey and how that's taking off. What's that first moment where you start to think a little bit differently about things you were or weren't doing? So basically, many people are facing a crisis, and then they discover, you know, Judaism. Baruch Hashem, I was really successful. Everything was great. And uh, in a way, I was really popular and famous in Israel. But something happened there in the middle of, of everything. I was 15, and I first met three religious girls. Now, for me, it was some of kind of a forum for, for, for teenagers. I don't remember exactly the activity they had, but I was there, you know, interviewing everyone. And then I met those three girls and I wanted to, you know, interview them. It was like, wow, I told them it's really interesting. And they said, what's so interesting? And I said, three religious girls were found in the state of Israel. It's a scoop. You know, it was like UFOs <laughs> for me. Wow, <laughs> religious girls today. And they were laughing at me basically. And they gave me that interview, but they said, listen, don't publish you know, what we what you asked, because your questions are silly, it's clueless, you know. So I said, okay, so what do you suggest? And they said, in Hebrew, they said two words that changed my life. They said, bo'i le Shabbat, meaning, how is your Hebrew, by the way? What is bo'i le Shabbat? I will tell you that my wife is fluent because her parents are Israeli and I am not. And for the sake of our listeners, it's good to translate everything. Okay, boy le Shabbat meaning come for Shabbos. Bo, boy, it's come. Come for Shabbat, come for Shabbos. Come and see what Shabbat is all about. So I came as an investigative journalist, not as a Jewish teenager. I wanted to see what those, you know, UFOs are doing, but uh, <laughs> it wasn't for me. And I just fell in love. You know, I came, uh, the first Shabbat was in the city of Be'er Sheva. It's in the south of Israel. So I took the bus from Herzliya to Be'er Sheva. And uh, the rest is, you know, history in a way, because... Uh, was the first Shabbat I kept with them, and suddenly uh, Judaism was relevant and, uh, and alive, you know, for the first time. I always thought it's so primitive, it has nothing to say. I didn't need it. It was something ancient, and suddenly it became really needed. So when you say, though, the rest is history, that is possibly glossing over, it's not one day you're not and the next day you are. 
So what were some of those concrete steps coming out of that like wonderful Shabbos experience you had that you started taking on yourself that sort of accelerated that journey for you? Yeah, people must understand it's a journey that never ends. Well, Hashem, I mean, it, as long as we're here alive, it's a life's journey. It's not like you press a button on, off, you know, secular, religious, or good, bad, wrong. No, it's, it's something you discover and you just choose that path, you know, choose that road and you start moving forward and it never ends. So it, it started there. I believe those girls, by the way, I think uh, they deserve a credit because I, I really, I can never thank them enough. Their names are Yael and Daphna and Shiran. We're still in touch. And the, 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 the secret is not the fact they invited me once. That's very nice to invite someone for Shabbos just once. The secret is they invited me twice for the first, second time. And then every month, every month, they said, well, I want you to come to Be'er Sheva. And for me, Shabbat became something that is really connected to the city, Be'er Sheva. And you keep Shabbat in Be'er Sheva, you know? I didn't know Shabbat is a concept, world, global concept. So for me, once a month, I came there. And they didn't give up because they saw it, it doesn't change my life, you know? I, they didn't start keeping Shabbat immediately, but they had patience and they saw, you know, the process. And it was beautiful because I was there every month keeping Shabbat with them. And then afterwards in Herzliya, next Shabbat, I was on TV, by the way, Israeli TV, unfortunately, uh, uh, they are like 24 seven. So I was on TV on Friday night, uh, Saturday morning, but okay, once a month I was in Beersheba and everything was different. So uh, for me, Shabbat wasn't just once a week, it, it, it was just one, once a month. And for me, it was really for a year. Listen, I, I was there like until I realized Shabbat is mine. It's not there, it's, I should take it from Beersheba to Herzliya, to Tel Aviv, to New York, it's, it's everywhere. It took me almost a year, okay? Just, and it's just Shabbat, okay? There are so many other mitzvot and parts and things in the Jewish world, but you can learn a lot from that story because there's no miracle here. Uh, there's something really, I would say, long and with a lot of, you know, it's like a marathon. It's not like something, it, it doesn't end in, in one day. I'm also really fascinated by the way you mentioned these three women who are taking this repeating interest in you. And I see the more stories I listen to about people who become observant, you really need someone who's almost mentoring you, who has a special interest in, in coaching you through your journey, because you feel sometimes a little lost at the beginning, you don't know how to make sense of everything. And when someone takes an interest in you, and you can rely on them, you almost feel like they're like pulling you along the road. So it seems like you and I had a similar experience in that way that we had that mentor who was helping us. Exactly. I think sometimes those mentors are not rabbis, you know, rabbanim, they're not experts. Uh, you shouldn't be a professor and you shouldn't learn Torah for 10 years in order to start. These girls were just 15. They weren't like so uh, observant themselves. They were average, you know, modern Orthodox girls from Israel, but they had so much to give. And sometimes we underestimate ourselves. We don't know how much we know and we do not understand how necessary it is to share it with others and they cared about me. They weren't selfish. And I, I really, I can, can never thank them enough because, um, you know, they could say, okay, she's from TV, she's famous, she's, she's uh, well known and uh, I will ask her to come for Shabbat. Yes, don't be shy. You have a treasure, you have a gift and it's not yours. I mean, you should give it to others. It belongs to them too. And that's what they did. They just offered in a very nice way, you know, nobody's forcing you and no, it was just, you know, it, it belongs to you too. Do you want, want to know something about Shabbat? And the fact is, you know, we meet God through people. We all have what we call in Hebrew, Tzalem Elohim, the image of God. It's, it's within us. So that's how we meet him at the end, the God at the end of the day, through people 
that care about us and expose us to this mutual treasure. I think it's really important. For sure. And, and you mentioned before how the news cycle never stops. So it's 24-7. So how supportive were your employers at the time of you saying, look, I'm, I'm on this journey and there were things I could do and I'm not going to do them. What was their perspective on, on the changes you were making in your personal life? So basically my colleagues thought I'm becoming crazy. You know why? <laughs> the rating is great on Shabbat. But by the way, it changed in Israel today. People are more I would say traditional conservative, the, the rating on Shabbos is, is lo lower, is, but then it was like primetime shows. And they said, why? I mean, why? You can come for an hour, then you can rest. But no, mm -hmm. on Shabbos, you don't have to rest. So my colleagues, uh, basically, maybe some of them still think I'm, I'm crazy. But you know what? Behind the scenes, and that was fascinating, some of the people I worked with, you know, the, uh, the lady, you know, the makeup, the dresser, the, 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 they said, wow, we're jealous. We envy you. We don't want to be here on Friday night. Nobody wants to make, we want to be at home. We have kids, family, we want to be with them. We want to spend time with them. Nobody wants those taxes on Friday night, on, on midnight, taking us back from the studio. And it's not, it's not fun to wake up Shabbos morning and, and come and make up, it's, it's not. And it was fascinating to see behind the scenes, those people and how it's, it's not fair. I mean, Shabbat is also, it's their Shabbat too. As I said, it belongs to all of us. So um, publicly, people said, oh, she's so extreme. What's going on here? But I saw how I'm not extreme. People need Shabbat uh, urgently. They, they want it. They just don't have, uh, you know, they, they can't say it to their boss. So they whispered. They said it to me. Uh, we want it too. So I think this is an important question because some folks might believe you have to pick your career or religion and you can't excel in both at the same time. So here you are on your journey and you're facing this very thing. You have people whispering in your ear telling you you're about to throw away your career. You're missing out on the most popular day of the week to be on TV. And you're sticking with your beliefs and saying, no, this journey feels right and I'm going to do that. So what's your perspective on can you excel in both or is it a choice between the two? So it wasn't like a conflict. Oh, I'm here with, you know, my kiddush and challah but I, and now there's a great me meal, but no, I want to be there. I, I didn't. I have six days a week, it's enough to sit there in the studios and to interview and to create and promote and do things and develop the world. But you, Hashem stopped for one day, you know, so maybe we should stop too. So no, I didn't want to be there. No, it's not like people still think. Sometimes they tell me, oh, you probably want to be there on Friday night. No, I don't want to be there. But it's not just something technical, you know, being there. It's the minute you realize Shabbat blesses everything. I mean, it changes the six days before Shabbat and the six days that are after Shabbat, it's completely different if you keep Shabbat like in the middle. It's like a, it affects everything because the, the tempo is, is different. The pulse is different. You wait, you have that anticipation during the week and everything is, you know, everything we, we do is like towards Shabbat is coming and afterwards you get so much energy and strength and inspiration. So it affects, you know, we need, and, and, and after six days, you need it desperately. Once again, you need to, it's like charging your, you know, your iPhone, you just need it. So I never regretted this decision was always so for me, you know, maybe some other people, maybe they have their uh, conflicts and, you know, um, moments when they have, you know, have to choose. But for me, it was so natural. You know, it was like, it's a match. Jews and Shabbat, it's, it, it goes together. It's, it's perfect. 
And so you kind of made peace with the fact that, okay, the news cycle continues through Shabbos and I pick it up again on Sunday and I've done my six days and I'm going to rest a little bit and I'll be right back in it the next day. And you were okay with that. So you don't miss anything in a way because important things, you know, if it's not pikuach nefesh, it's not something urgent that you must do on Shabbat because people will get hurt. Okay, otherwise, I mean, if you're sometimes if you're a doctor or a nurse, but as a journalist, I think we will be healthier if we stopped for one day. You can't be online all the time. It's not healthy for you. It's crazy. So Shabbat does not only mean, you know, turn off your phone, but that's the basic, I think, step, stage, level in order to reach higher levels. But definitely, I think it's, it's. I don't think you, you should explain it today. I mean, people know it inside their heart. They understand how crazy it is to be so connected. I'm always on. It's like, a, it's, a, it's a job. We all work in a new job today. So please give, give me one day off. It's, 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 you come back as a better version of yourself. It's, it's okay. I mean, on Motsa'i Shabbat, on Sunday, you, um, you come back stronger, I believe. Everything you do, I, I think, becomes better after Shabbat. I totally agree. And you mentioned you were listening to my story. And one of the things I say is that the first time we kept Shabbos and our oldest was only four, and at the end, he says, this was my favorite day I ever had with you, mommy and daddy. And you realize because you just disconnected from all the distraction and you're present with your family. Things are becoming deeper, meaning prayer, Shabbat, Chagim, holidays, kashrut, you know, what you eat. In a way, because the world is so, everything is available, everything is accessible, everything is here. And choosing, saying, no, now I don't do this. Now I stop everything, I talk, I speak to him. Now I, I believe in a way it gives a different depth. You know, when I think of my grandmother, okay, in this Piotrkov, in this city in Poland, the world wasn't so confusing. I mean, now I believe we need that compass much more because things are getting crazier every day. So it really sounds like you were finding that balance in your career. So I want to talk about your family now. How did your parents feel about you becoming observant? I didn't tell them yet. So I don't know. <laughs> you didn't tell them even today or, or now they know? No, no. Now they know, but it was so slow, really. People laughed at me. You know, I, I'm really, you know, sensitive. I don't want to hurt them. And they're so nice and normal. You know, they're great people and really great friends. So it was really, really a slow process. You know, I didn't want to change everything in their kitchen. And I waited for years, you know. I started observing some things. I, I already did some things, but I always knew when I was... When I will get married, then I will be able to do whatever I, I want in, in my house. But as long as I live with them, I respect the rules, everything. It's their house and I will respect it. So I tried, you know, regarding Kashrut or Shabbat, but it was like, uh, it was really gentle. But I had a lot of time to learn and to study, you know, to read. I missed those years, you know, on Shabbat. I could take like three books and I finished, you know, <laughs> uh, everything in, in one Shabbat. I had a lot of time alone thinking, learning, and I had a lot, of, a lot to learn about, you know, about Judaism. So these were great years at, at the end of the day. And you just brought up marriage. So let's discuss how your husband comes into the picture and what's his level of observance at the time that you meet and what, what are some of those discussions like as you're thinking about starting, you know, your, your own life together? Okay, so my husband, Yididya, his father is a Rav and he, they, they have like 11 brothers and sisters and uh, in a way he comes from a religious family, definitely. And uh, the fact that we started with Shabbat, and that's the name of your podcast, so I must share this story. Although uh, my kids are laughing at me already, they said, Mommy, enough with this story. People know it by heart. <laughs> Let's see. 
Maybe some of your listeners, they never heard that story, maybe. Uh, so I was uh, already 18, 19, and a friend of mine invited me to his birthday party. His name was Yoni, and he wanted me to come on Friday night to celebrate his birthday. And I said, sorry, Yoni, you know, I started keeping Shabbat. Seriously, I can't come. And he was mad. He was angry. How? Oh, you're so primitive, and you're so narrow-minded, and you're so, you know, Satmer. Satmer is a very extreme stream in Judaism. Turns out he thinks if you keep Shabbat, you become like Satmer. Anyway, I told him, sorry, Yoni, I won't be there. And uh, the next day he called me once again saying, okay, I discovered another friend of mine, also stupid and primitive and nudnik. <laughs> That's in Yiddish, nudnik like you, and you won't, uh, you won't come and he won't come. Okay, I will postpone. The event will take place on Saturday night, meaning Motza'ei Shabbat, after Shabbat, and you will come. I told yeah, now I have to come. So I came there and Yoni was greeting the guests at the entrance and he saw me and he said, oh, you must meet the other annoying friend of mine. His name is Yedidia. And he just came back with my husband. A minute later, he just brought him to me and I said, oh, you're the primitive guy. And he said, yeah, you're, you're the primitive lady. Great. Let's speak. And we started talking Hashem, until today. That's how we met. So Shabbat was the matchmaker, uh, actually, you know, because we both kept Shabbat. It was Everything was changed, and that's how we met for, for the first time. And Baruch Hashem, it's, it's different. I mean, I really believe his family is a source of, um, I would say, um, stability. By the way, I say to many people who become observant, when you talk about matchmaking, about shiduchim, you know, about marriage, it's a good idea. You know, taking someone from a orthodox, from religious, observant family, and someone who's like a new immigrant that knows nothing, just came into this world, and I think maybe it's it's a good idea. I know it works Hashem, in our, in our uh, family, in our house. But yeah, I believe maybe we should think about it much more. There are many singles in Israel, in America, many stories of people who, who want to get married. And maybe we should think about this this option, this opportunity more. Because we can teach and learn from each other. It's For us, it's great. <laughs> so when you were getting more serious with your soon-to-be husband, did it matter? Or were there conversations about the fact that you weren't raised observant? Was that a factor in in the relationship taking off or it didn't matter? No, for him, it didn't matter. His family is really special. They come from the Cook family connected to Rav Cook. They're really open and love, you know, people. And, and, and they, they loved, you know, my journey and they, and my parents also loved him. I mean, in a way, I think he taught me so much because learning from someone who is connected to Mount Sinai, to Har Sinai directly, you know, the chain, it never stopped. It's, it's really, for me, it's really exciting. Whenever I meet someone who is from an, observing family, I tell them, you don't appreciate enough that the fact that from Moshe Rabbeinu to you, it, the, the generations are connected, you know, no one stopped in the middle. No one was confused. No one walked away. It's a miracle. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's, you know, we don't think about it too much. And so you and I have a, a similarity in that we're, we're raising children observant, but our parents are secular. So how do you talk to your kids about these different levels of observance and how there's this range within your own family? I don't hide anything. I don't lie to them. They know what I do. Sometimes people become religious and they started to feel like ashamed, you know, and they try to erase parts of their past. You know, I'm on TV. Everything is online. The archives are full, are full you know, with my shows, you know, from the age of six. So I can't tell something different to my kids. I, I uh, in a way, honesty, transparency, that's my story. I hope you'll be proud of it, but don't be ashamed. And you know, there's so many today Jews with similar stories. So it's not something special today. I am, uh, you know, I don't want to insult you. You're very special and I'm very special. But today, many Jews are discovering their heritage 
and they speak about it, you know, openly. I believe uh, it's not such a big deal. The real big deal, by the way, is not the social change, you know, it's the inner change, changing your midot, you know, the your identity and your soul and becoming a better person and thinking about what you speak and the way you pray and the way you keep Shabbat. It's not just if, you know, I keep or do not keep. How do I do it? It's not just I pray. How do I pray? How do I, you know, it's not just the technical details. It's it's much more. And that's the real, the real challenge. After you change, you know, oh, now I belong to a different sector. Okay, and now what? Hashem wants your soul, your heart. That's much harder, you know, uh, for, for all of us, for from, from birth and for for uh, those who became religious. And do you find that when you're reporting on stories now, does the fact that you're observant and on this journey, does it does it shape at all the way that you approach stories or how you report on them? Or do you sort of turn that off and now I'm a, a journalist? No, I don't believe we have objective journalists anymore. Social media killed uh, objective journalists. <laughs> Nothing is left because today we are expo- people know who we are. And I think we must bring our agenda to work every day. Don't hide it. Whoever you are, just speak about your ideology. And yeah, I speak about it all the time. It is much more interesting because we started, you remember we said the information is there. You don't need me for the information. I don't want to be boring just telling you, hmm, Supreme Court did this or the parliament or prime minister. You know it already. You need me for the context, for the the way you need commentators. You don't need reporters anymore. Hardly, you know, unless you have a s- specific scoop or something you investigate, investigated. But so you, I must bring my agenda and that's what I do. And Bochashem, it's much, I became much more successful since I started saying what I think, what I like, what I dislike. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what people want. So I speak a lot about Judaism and Shabbat, but it's it's not just about mitzvot, you know, uh, practical things you keep. I think it's, a, in a way, it's the glasses, the perspective, the way you see things in a positive or in a negative way. There's a famous sentence here in Israel. We say that every evening on the news at eight, we say good evening, but then for an hour, we prove to you well, it's not a good one, okay? <laughs> good evening, bad, 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 weather forecast and bad things, better, but, but, mostly. And that's, I try to change that equation, okay? There are also good news. Great things are happening to the Jewish people, to the world. We're moving forward. Why don't we cover it? Why won't we share it with you? Why do we share only negative news with, with you? And yeah, it's part of me, of my Judaism, I think. So what should the opening line be when you start the news? No, good evening. That's okay. <laughs> but then I, I don't want to hide. You know, sometimes people laugh at me. You know, they imitate me on Saturday shows here in Israel. We have our own Saturday Night Live here in Israel. So mm-hmm. they always laugh at me like, oh, I, I erase everything that is bad doesn't exist. No, I have my criticism and we must now with COVID or the political system, we have a political crisis. We do need to say, you know, to, to tell you the truth. I, I'm not naive and I'm not, you know, stupid. I know what's going on, but I do think that we must, it's our obligation, just as we must expose negative things that are going on, and uh, it's our responsibility, we must expose good things that are going on. People sit there. I imagine my grandmother, she's 86. Why won't I tell her, you know, this, uh, um, I don't know, academic development or spiritual things that are going on here or big uh, groups from the, the uh, of Olim uh, Chadashim, you know, new immigrants, what's going on in the world and teenagers that volunteer and what's going on in, in our Parsha, why the way the weekly portion we read in the Torah, it's part of our culture. I believe it's part of the news here in Israel. So why won't I do something wider, more interesting and more balanced 
And at the end of the day, yeah, we, she will go to sleep and know about positive things that are going on. What is this? Is this a sin? You know, why? Why do they laugh at me when I want to when I share it with with people? I believe it's part of my job. That, that's how I see it. And for sure, to at least show that there's a balance, it's not all bad. You can have a mix and show people that it's not one way or the other. There's a little bit of both going on in the world at all times. Exactly. And no, but if you focus on the good, it in a way it becomes bigger. It expands. And if you focus on the bad, the opposite happens. I mean, you decide, as I said, these are the glasses we wear. We decide how do we see reality. We must fight and you need optimism in order to fight. And you just mentioned the United States. I know you had the opportunity to spend time here teaching and speaking. So I'm curious about that experience and kind of what you learned about the American-Israeli relationship from having so much time here. Wow. So first of all, yeah, I see the OU logo, you know, Orthodox Union in your podcast. And I, mm -hmm. I worked for YU. I had the privilege of being there for almost two semesters at Stern College. And I was sent to the States by World Mizrahi Movement. They sent us to be shlichim, to, to live there for for. Okay, COVID stopped everything in the middle, but we were supposed to be there for two years. Anyway, it was fascinating to meet Jewish communities from you know all over North America, from Montreal and Toronto to Florida and California and Maryland and, and Memphis and Texas. We were we were really everywhere, Baruch Hashem, and we met so many schools and shuls and communities and campuses, and it was great to see this world. But now it was great to see this bubble. And it's a bubble. When I look back at that year in America, it was a beautiful bubble. You can spend your whole life stuck inside this bubble. OU, YU, gap year, camps. It's great. It's not enough because the majority of the, you know of, of the Jews around you are not inside this bubble. 20% and they assimilate. They walk away. They disappear. And I believe we invest a lot of time and energy and money inside this bubble, inside this chulant in a way without reaching out to them. I'm sorry, you know, maybe it's too rude. Maybe I'm too Israeli, you know, saying you, you know, what's wrong. But after mentioning the fact it was fascinating and you built empires of identity, the schools and everything, it's great. I mean, the, the system works, but it's too small and so many are left behind. And what about them? I believe this is our, in, in the States, it's much more urgent. They will really disappear. And, and we, we must share this gift. It belongs to them. And I just want to mention the Israelis in the States. Please take care of them because this, we have almost 1 million Israelis there. You mentioned your wife's parents. And sometimes this group, they're really lost in a way because they're not used to pay, you know, tuition for schools and membership in, in schools. And they're not really religious. So why should they do it? And, and they, you know, it's, it's a huge crisis. I'm in touch with so many groups of Israelis and organizations trying to improve the, their situation there. I love them. You know, I'm really, I really feel connected to this special group. So uh, whenever I can, I just mention them because it's, uh, imagine American synagogues, you know, caring for them, organizing things for them, inviting them to be part of the community. You should change the equation because you're used to, to care for Israel and now you care for the Israelis abroad. But I believe it's a very important task to all of us. I'm glad you mentioned this bubble because I, when I talk with other friends who weren't raised observant, sometimes we say, you know what, we're glad we had that time period of our life to see secular Judaism because now that we're living in this, quote, bubble that you mentioned, I still have an appreciation for all the relationships and people I have that are outside the bubble. And as you're raising your own family, you want them 
protected in that bubble because your goal is for them to stay observant and be happy with this lifestyle. But you also want them to understand that there's tons and tons of Jews who are not living that way and you want them to have relationships there also so they kind of understand the full scope of the religion. It's a, it's a very delicate balance. Yeah, it's really hard to balance. Uh, and the world changed. I mean, the childhood I had was so innocent. As a, as a secular girl, you know, we watched TV, you know, we watched the kids show on TV. That's all we had. Even if you wanted, that's all we had, okay? And that's it. Now the world is much more, you know, open and dangerous in a way. It's, 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 we have great things that are going on. You know, technology is also great. I don't want to live in a tent and uh, writing uh, mails with an envelope. But um, childhood change, the concept of childhood change completely. And I do want to protect my kids, but yeah, I want them to meet other people and know about other Jews. And they're great Jews. That they, they, you know, they, these are their, their grandparents. I mean, it's uh, it's not the enemy. It's not them. It's it's us. It's it's part of our family. So I'm just curious, as you think about raising your own kids, what are some of the goals you have for them of how you want them to experience Jewish observance and for what you want them to understand about the journey that they're on? I think in a way, and I didn't mention the Lubavitcher Rebbe, according to his legacy, that the world shlichut should really be meaningful for them. Shlichas, shlichut, meaning you're on a mission. You're important. Many people say Hashem loves you. God loves you. That's great. Hashem needs you. It's not just about love. You're loved. People, people the kids today, people tell them all the time, we love you. The parents, the teachers, it's okay. You should be protected and loved, but it's not enough. Hashem loves you, that's great. Hashem needs you. You are needed. You have your mission. You have your shlichut, your task to do here. And it's just you. It's only you were created in order to do something meaningful in this world. Everything you do is important. Every mitzvah, every blessing, every time you daven, you pray, every every good things you do of tzedakah and chesed, you know, of kindness and charity. And every time you care about a fellow Jew, a different person, that you help them, you teach them. So this sense of shlichut, you know, to see the spark, in their eyes, I believe it's really important. I want them to be inspired because sometimes the teenagers today are uninspired. So it's a, it's not just me, you know, they have a father and teachers and friends and the community, but I believe that's the goal today, that we're doing something meaningful in this world. Yeah, I always tell my children that they may think that I chose to be observant. So I had this choice of whether to do it or not, and they maybe didn't because they're being raised that way. But I want them to feel like they're choosing it every day and that they're happy to be part of this journey and not feel like it was forced on them. Because when children feel forced, it rarely turns out well. Definitely. And by the way, Judaism should be fun. Before I spoke a lot about ideologies and narratives, it should be fun. It should be nice and fun. And, and you know, you should laugh and, and be nice and be just, just uh, uh, people who want to stay if it's, if it's fun. It's, 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 it's cool. So speaking of nice and fun, that's the perfect lead in to do our lightning round for the super fast five questions I'm about to ask you. Are you ready? Yes, definitely. Okay, question number one. Who is the most interesting person you ever interviewed? Wow. Um, Ravadia Yosef, Natan Sharansky. But I hope in the future I will, I will even have more interesting uh, people to interview. Okay, and who in journalism do you most admire and why? Wow, my husband. He's also a media personality and he's great on radio, weekly column. He's great. That was a good call to mention your husband. That's good for Shalom Bias. <laughs> Okay, question three. If you weren't working as a journalist, what do you think you'd be doing with your life? Wow, unemployed, nothing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have uh, any other skills. I don't know. No, good question. Then you really must have picked the right thing if you're thinking it's that or nothing. There's no, there was no plan B, no backup plan. Uh, yeah, I guess I would, you know, would find something, but uh, yeah, it's hard to even imagine uh, that situation. 
Okay. And what do you find to be the most fascinating story you ever covered that just grabbed you and you it's like front and center for you maybe even all these years later, like that story really grabbed you? Almost every story, people who changed something, you know, sometimes these are like families of terror victims and uh, what they did afterwards after the tragedy, people who made Aliyah, I admire stories of change, people who became religious, people who opened an organization, did something like inspiring, uplifting that I can learn from. I try to cover those stories. And last question, you're given three days off to take a vacation with your husband and your kids. Where are you going? I'm going here to Yerushalayim, but as a vacation, because uh, really, I love the, uh, I love it here, but I work, uh, you know, all the time. We live here as people who live here. I want to come to Yerushalayim as an American, the way you come, the way you're excited to go to the Kotel and the Machne Yuda market. You know, uh, we spoke about the, the spark in your eyes. I want to come here as, a, as an American tourist. Sounds cool. So, you know, we call that a staycation when you go where you already are. Exactly, exactly. But when it's Yerushalayim, once again, changing the... the uh, the glasses, you know, the way the perspective, the way you look at it. Uh, I don't pay the bills here and it's not about the traffic. I come here as a foreign Jew who comes to his, you know, who's home. I want to thank you, Sivan, so much for joining us today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you very much from Yerushalayim. Thank you. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit TachlisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.